in my position, oftentimes I'm asked to lead programs or lead projects, but I don't necessarily have dedicated people on my staff or within my team that technically report to me. I think in order to really motivate folks and sort of get them to follow and to help you execute on things, the ability for people to sort of experience and feel those things themselves is critical. When you're trying to convince somebody about something you have an idea or a program or a project you want to execute on, people will show slides or, or explain, which is kind of like showing the sheet music for a song like Stairway to Heaven. And what you really want to do is just press play and have people feel 30 seconds of that music. You can look at the sheet music all day and it's kind of a roadmap and, and explains what you're trying to get across, but nothing can equate to actually listening to what that translates into. Welcome, I am your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. I hope you enjoyed our last episode where we talked to Mohansian about the future of hybrid and remote work. Our guest today is Jonathan Jacobs, founder of Rockstars, a nonprofit that provides free music education programs and instruments to kids and young adults. His vision is that music education should not be a luxury because music education provides great life skills. This belief comes from Jonathan's own journey. He had an amazing career. He toured the world as a live sound engineer for many years and then spent 20 years in technology. Now he is a leader in the global philanthropy group at Hasbro. In our conversation, you will hear how his passion for music gave Jonathan a focus and helped him find confidence in his own skills, and how he used all the lessons that he learned while working in music to become a better leader in a corporate environment. He found the Rockstars many years ago to start giving back. The expertise he built and the success he had with Rockstars helped him ultimately transition from technology to philanthropy within Aspro. So we also talked about how to make big career shifts within an organization. A lot of our conversation, though, revolves around purpose and vision. How do you find your own purpose? What can purpose do for an organization? And finally, the power of finding ways to have people experience the vision rather than just talking about it, and how that can actually help rally people behind the cause or create alignment. Before we get into the episode, as some of you know, music is a big passion of mine, partially because it did for me a lot of what Jonathan aims to do for kids with it. So I would like to encourage you to go to rockstars.org, spelled R-A-W-K-S-T-A-R-S.org. And if you like what you see, please consider joining their fan club by making a donation. And now enjoy the episode. Hey, Jonathan, it's great to have you here. So let's start by telling our listeners your story. Tell us who you are and, and how you got here. Sure. Well, first off, thanks for having me, Dino. It's a real pleasure. So as far as my story and how I got here, it's kind of a long and circuitous route. I currently uh, manage programs for the philanthropy division over at Hasbro. And I also am a founder and executive director of a local Massachusetts-based nonprofit called Rockstars Incorporated. And our mission is to provide free instruments, lessons, and music education for kids. So those things on the surface probably line up 
to anybody listening to this. They're both nonprofit and philanthropy related. But I spent many years in other careers before I, I came to where I am now. I started like a lot of kids, kind of uncertain about my future, not really super focused. My folks had, you know, broken up at a young age as a lot of kids from the 70s went through. And I didn't have a lot of direction or energy or passion for school at the time. But through participating in music, I really found myself. I literally can point back to a light bulb moment in time when I went into a recording studio with some friends. And I immediately knew that that was what I wanted to pursue for my life. I had been involved with music for several years, both as a listener and fan, and I tried my hand at playing music, kind of knocking around in a few garage bands back in the day. But I quickly came to the realization that I wasn't the most talented guy in the room, a realization that continues to this day. But through the participation and, and just being involved with music, it gave me the opportunity to experience music from the point of view of a recording studio. And I immediately was drawn to that, sort of like a moth to flame. And it turned me from a kind of uninspired, aimless, directionless, lazy kid into a very focused, career-oriented, organized, and driven person, namely because I found something that I fell in love with. And through that love, I, you know, had the passion, but then I was able to develop the skills necessary to complement that passion. I spent the better part of the next 15 years or so as a touring sound engineer, working for lots of bands. I, I traveled all over the world. I've been to about 30 different countries and experienced music from the inside. And a little bit later in my journey, about the just before the turn of uh, Y2K, I wound up changing gears and becoming very interested in uh, the web as it was burgeoning back at that time. And I decided to take some courses in web development. I had always been kind of a technical guy. Again, I, you know, spending 15 years as a touring sound engineer, you get used to a lot of pressure, live experience, being in front of people dealing with technology sort of on the spot. And so that training really prepared me for a career uh, in becoming a web developer. So I transitioned careers for the first time, uh, but not the last. And I spent the better part of the next 20 years in various roles throughout technology. I started out again as a, as a developer, you know, writing code, building websites, Lots of big brands. Uh, I worked for a company called Digitas back in the day, where you and I actually briefly crossed paths. And in my role there, I worked for brands like L.L. Bean, Goodyear, Crest, and the Procter & Gamble family of companies, among others, Goodyear. But then later was able to transition into leadership roles within technology. I had always been a very organized and execution plus strategy person. I sort of, you know, was always able to not only put work together and do the execution, but also strategize behind the scenes about why what I was doing was important or how I could contribute to the business or to other, other people's business. So those skills kind of made me well-suited to become an engineering manager 
and I sort of worked my way up. I worked for a tech startup called You Promise for about seven years, where I managed a team of developers. And then later, I sort of found my way down to Hasbro, where I initially came on as an agile practitioner. For anybody that's not familiar, agile is sort of a, um, a methodology for executing projects that's very popular in technology and software development. So I came on board here to Hasbro in that capacity. Can I stop you here for a second? Sure. There's a lot of richness in what you just covered. And before we get to the other big transition in your career, a lot of people, when they hear I've toured the world with bands, have some glamorous ideas in that in their mind. But the reality is that that's a lot harder and more practical job than many people think. So what are the key skills and key habits that you learned while doing the job that then you brought into the rest of your career? Yeah, sure. Great question. So it's funny. There was a few years ago, there was this popular meme series online where it sort of showed four quadrants, what people think I do, what my what my mother thinks I do, and what do I really do? And it sort of shows very different pictures of the puzzle. And I think uh, touring with the band and being involved in the music business kind of kind of fits that profile. There were parts of it that were glamorous. I mean, traveling and seeing lots of the world at a pretty young age was pretty amazing. I think I learned a lot from the actual travel. I think I learned an appreciation for other cultures. You know, up until that point in my life, I hadn't really traveled much, certainly not outside of the United States. But I think it humanized other concepts in my mind where you just you think about people from the Soviet Union, which for me, a kid growing up in the 70s was kind of scary. But then visiting there and seeing that the people are just like me and just like my friends, it really humanized the rest of the world and made it feel a lot closer and more comfortable. So I think that was a big lesson for me. You know, I also think that music in general is one of those skills that really does translate to lots of other areas of your life. I think kind of obviously it requires you to become a great listener. You know, if you're going to play in a band with people or mixing a band, in my case, you really need to become a critical listener and paying attention to what's going on and not just getting caught up in the moment. You know, as a fan, you've got to be able to kind of create a little bit of separation there and listen to things a little bit more critically. So I, I would say that listening was a huge part of it. And I think it really opened my mind, although I, I don't think I realized it at the time. I think it introduced me to the fact that I could take something that I loved and also overlap that with my professional career and do something to make a good living. And, you know, to a lot of folks, I think that's a foreign concept. And, you know, people think of work as something they have to do to feed their families or, you know, make an ends meet for lots of reasons. And they think of, you know, something that they love or have passion for as something you do outside of work. And so I think doing that was the first time that I was able to really put those things together that you could actually find something, not only just find something that you loved and were good at, but that those two things were very complementary and often can result in great success and great outcomes. Because if you have that passion and that love for what you're doing, 
almost by definition, you can't help but be really good at it. Yes. And I'm interested, when you're touring with a band, whether it's a big band or a small band, you're working with the same group of people in a very close environment for very intense stretches of time. So what are some of the lessons that you learned in terms of building and developing relationships and working in a context where ultimately you are responsible for an outcome, but you need people to help you with that outcome. And sometimes you may not have authority over those people. Yeah, no question. I think you're right about the, the quarters being very close and very authentic. I think the the big lesson that I think that I really took away from it in my position, oftentimes I'm asked to lead programs or lead projects, but I don't necessarily have dedicated people on my staff or within my team that technically report to me. So I think that I was able to develop a skill where, you know, a lot of it, I think, comes down to sort of the authenticity and empathy that develops between this sort of familial relationship that you that you develop with the artist. I think in order to really motivate folks and sort of get them to follow and to help you execute on things, the ability for people to sort of experience and feel those things themselves is critical. I kind of equate it to when you're trying to convince somebody about something you have an idea or a program or a project you want to execute on. And it's sort of akin to people will show slides or, or explain, which is kind of like showing the sheet music for a song like Stairway to Heaven. And what you really want to do is just press play and have people feel 30 seconds of that music, right? It's like, you can look at the sheet music all day and it's kind of a roadmap and, and explains what you're trying to get across, but nothing can equate to actually listening to what that translates into. And so I think when you're able to sort of have people that are together experiencing something together simultaneously in the same way, that it really can strengthen those connective bonds and tissues that make those kind of relationships possible. So if I can rephrase what you just said, you basically need to have people experience the vision so that they can get excited to delve into the details to bring it to life. Would this be a good way to put it? Yeah, ab absolutely. I, I think that's spot on. I want to go back to something else you said about your transition. And I think it speaks to your ability to master what probably is one of the most challenging transitions that people face in their career. And that is going from being a specific technical expert, you know, and that can apply whether you're in finance, you're in technology, or like the scientist who is used to do research and then present their finding. So as I said, going from being a specific technical expert to becoming a manager, not everybody is able to do that. So what were some of the key moments when you realized that actually you enjoyed and were good at managing people? And what were some of the key lessons that you used from your past and brought into that? Yeah, I think some of the key lessons is that the power of many is always going to be stronger than the power of one. We oftentimes, and you know, I'm, I'm like many others in this way, in that you kind of have a vision and you feel like you want to execute it and you want to retain control and you want to sort of have your fingers in and all the pieces of the puzzle. But I think key is really finding 
and working with partners that can complement your skill sets, right? Like a lot of companies today, we hear a lot of talk about diversity in the workplace. And I think it's an important topic, but I think that some companies are, are kind of getting it wrong because I think they only see diversity through the lens of, you know, race or gender or certain lines like that, where I think diversity really is encompassing of all sorts of aspects, not just what you look like, not just your culture or your heritage, but where did you grow up? People that went to college and sort of went down a traditional path versus people who didn't go to college or didn't go down a traditional path. That's also diversity, right? It's like diversity of mindset. And I think when you can really embrace that, it's kind of the nature of all things, right? Like literally mother nature has designed everything around diversity, right? The idea of evolution, just kind of putting all kinds of random things out there and seeing which ones are successful is kind of something we can all use to sort of model it. You're trying to, to, to cultivate a garden. You can't just have a ton of rain, right? I might be the rainmaker to extend the analogy, but you also need sunlight. You also need fertile soil. You also need patience. You need to protect it from pests, right? You need all of these things so that the garden can flourish. And I think that that's, you know, one of the key lessons, I think, in working together and collaborating and building teams and bringing people together is you really need to think about that real full ecosystem of diversity through every and all possible lenses. Yeah, that's a very good point. Now, if you look at the other side of the coin in that transition, what are some of the challenges that you face and, and how did you work through them? I think one of the challenges that I've faced a lot through many of the transitions that I've made in my career, go back again to this concept of authenticity. Growing up as a kid in music, I was kind of trained to almost literally wear my heart on my sleeve, right? You're a kid and you're into rock music and you have your t-shirts and you've got your leather jacket and you're, you're doing that in a way you're sort of putting it out there to other folks as to what you are and what you're really all about. And you're doing that, A, because you feel it and it's your true authentic self, but you're also doing it to signal to other people out there because there are other people out there that are like you and you want to sort of find one another, right? You want to find your tribe. And so I kind of grew up with, with that. I, I literally and figuratively wore my heart on my sleeve. So when I got into the corporate world, I think that there was a tendency and an incorrect understanding that I had to kind of change my stripes, so to speak. You know, when you're in a business setting, there's expectations around looking and speaking and presenting yourself in a certain way. And, you know, that can be the type of thing that if you're not that kind of person, that can be really difficult to navigate in your career. It can be kind of limiting in a lot of ways. I think people will see you through a particular lens if you don't conform. And, you know, I think that that's something that early on I ran up against before. And, you know, I think that over time, though, it's sort of become a little bit of a superpower. I think there's a saying that if you wait long enough, everything kind of comes back into style or something to that effect. I think nowadays companies have learned 
that while there, of course, are parameters of propriety in the workplace, so to speak, that that comes in a lot of different shapes and sizes. And I think sometimes being able to sort of send those signals of authenticity out into the world can also have a way of attracting people that are secure and that understand that differences are what actually make us all stronger, right? If you're a company or you're a team and you're just looking for somebody who acts and looks and dresses and thinks just like you, that's easy. You can find that all over the place. But if you're really looking to do something special, you need to sort of bring in people that compliment you and not just kind of mimic what you already have. I'm curious, were there moments where you overcorrected to try to fit in? And, and were those moments, moments that kind of became aha moments for you? I, I think there absolutely were. There were definitely times in my career where I felt like I overcorrected and tried to conform or become a vision of myself that wasn't really what I was inside or what I wanted to be. And ultimately, I think that that's what kind of triggered or led to my most recent career change into the world of philanthropy. I'd been in IT for many years, over two decades. And, you know, I found myself kind of stagnating. I wasn't doing a lot of learning or working on new things. And I really didn't feel like I was having as much impact on the work that was being generated. And through that experience, it really led me to the point of, of going back to refiguring out what it was that made me tick. And I, I was able to come to the realization that really impact is the main thing that I'm looking to get out of my work. I want to be able to make things better for people. I want to be able to help others. And that's kind of the thing that gets me out of bed in the morning is the impact. So once I was able to really stop trying to just make my way and continue down the road of IT and build on the successes and build on the experiences that I had, I realized that I needed to make a pivot to get myself on a trajectory to where I was feeling more and more impactful about the work I was doing on a daily basis. And so that really directly led to me taking another big leap and changing careers again to make philanthropy my full-time focus. So this is something that is actually fascinating to me because you're making a really big functional shift and you're making it within the same organization, which is definitely not an easy thing to do because once people in an organization see you in a certain role or in a certain area, it's very hard for them to imagine you in a very different capacity. So I'm wondering, how did you go about making the shift? And if there are people here who are thinking about attempting a similar shift in, in their company and in role or organization, what is some of the advice that you could give them? I think the big lesson that I learned through trying to make this, this latest career transition, I think the lesson that I really take away and, and would encourage people around is, is one of vulnerability. You know, I'm a 51-year-old man and I grew up in the 70s and 80s when sort of the definition of of being a man included, you know, not wanting people to see you cry, always trying to be strong, providing for your family, all of those things. And while, you know, I, I do think that that some of those things are important, I do think that there's a lot of stereotypes there that we sort of all have unconsciously uh, embraced. And for me, I was always 
seen and felt myself as the one to help others. And I was the one people would come to me when they needed advice or if they needed a hand or to borrow money or to sort of help them through a tough time. And by the same token, while that, that was great, I never really was able to open up on my own and be the seeker when I was at a point when I really needed it. So long story short, after a lot of soul searching, some difficult emotional times for myself trying to figure this out on my own, I wound up really opening up to a couple of different people. One gentleman in particular who's become a bit of a mentor to me. And it was through that act of vulnerability and really explaining myself and having somebody listen and understand you know, was able to sort of turn the key to open up the door for the opportunity to sort of make this lateral move. And so I really took away from that, that had I not been able to become vulnerable and to open up and see that as actually a strength and not a weakness, that it never would have happened for me. And so even beyond the the career development and the opportunities that opened up on the job side, I think it was a great lesson for me as a man to learn that vulnerability actually is a strength and not a weakness. Right, because sometimes in a corporate environment, we're afraid that if we share an interest in something that is not what we're doing right now, that may make us vulnerable. It may make us top of the list if there's a downsizing, or it may just limit our overall career trajectory because we're afraid that people think that we're not fully committed. I want to actually shift a little bit still within this context. And I have an assumption that the work that you did with Rockstars actually was something that you were able to use to gain credibility uh, within Asbro when you started pursuing your other interests there. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what Rockstar was, what you did, and then if and how that played actually into your ability to get your current position? Yeah, absolutely. It, it most definitely did. You know, I had developed a lot of relationships in my existing company and and outside, of course, through uh, Rockstars, which has been running for over 18 years now. Yeah, let's take a second and tell our listeners what Rockstar is. Sure, yeah. So Rockstars is a uh, Massachusetts-based nonprofit founded in 2003, and our mission is to provide instruments, lessons, and music education programs for kids and families all 100% free of charge. So the core program for Rockstars is we find kids who want to participate in music, but for one reason or another cannot. Sometimes it's accessibility. A lot of times it's financial. Sometimes it's emotional or, or family troubles that prevent them. So we remove the obstacles there. If there's a kid who lives in Worcester that wants to play guitar, we, we find him or her, we give them a free instrument. We find them a music teacher in their local area. They sign up for lessons and we pay for those lessons every single month. And so our, our program is scalable and extensible in that we don't have a physical location. We work more as a coordinator or a conductor to sort of uh, connect the dots between all these groups. And, and even extending outwards, we're bringing these programs and services not only to families and children that actually need them, but I've come to learn through my own direct experience that we're also serving our supporters and our donors in a, in a unique way because 
there's a lot of great people in the world that are looking for a way to have an impact and they're looking for ways to help others, but they just may not, for whatever reason, have the time or the ability or the the wherewithal to sort of connect all those dots. So we look at ourselves as really sort of almost a conductor, conducting an orchestra where everybody is playing their part. It's like, you don't have to do anything really big or profound. If you're part of an orchestra, you just focus on your little bit. And if you have somebody kind of helping to coordinate and bring those divergent groups all together, magic can happen. And so that's kind of how we like to see ourselves. Well, so first of all, you're very, very humble because you didn't mention the fact you actually are the founder of Rockstars. But so that's a fun environment to operate in for an extended period of times. And, you know, you describe that role as the role of a conductor of an orchestra. But at the same time, it's a position where you don't have any formal authority. So what were some of the lessons that you brought from playing that role and making things happen in that world? And then how have those lessons impacted your ability to work with people where you are now? Yeah, sure. There's a couple of things I can think of. I'm going to lean into the experiential nature of the relationship. I think when I first started trying to fundraise or explain or write grants and and to get people to support rock stars, I spent a lot of intellectual time and investment trying to explain and trying to craft the perfect mission statement and build the perfect website and, you know, create great visuals and things of of this nature that we all kind of think of as the obvious methods of communication. And while I won't downplay those things, they, they are important. I think one lesson that I really learned is that nothing I could ever say or show somebody or discuss or convince them of can stand up or hold a candle to a mom and a student getting up and telling them their own personal experience, right? It just has a different level of power and connectivity with people. And so I've really learned that the the nature of it is figuring out ways to let others experience the power of rock stars that I, in my great fortune, get to experience firsthand on a regular basis, right? It's like, figuring out ways for people to see those stories, figuring out ways to get our donors connected with the people, the end users that are benefiting from their donations, right? Because nothing can trump hearing it firsthand from those that are really the ones that are impacted. That's great. So we talked about rock stars. We talk about the vulnerability moments when you opened up yourself within your corporate environment and in terms of sharing your passions. So how does that translate into stepping into the role that you're in now? I think it translated into me stepping into the role because I think it's important to really understand whatever your career aspirations are, wherever you're sort of headed or are, I think you really need to double down on the stuff that makes you feel fulfilled and gives you a purpose. There's a lot of learning and experts out in this field nowadays. It's, it's kind of a burgeoning industry talking about purpose. And, and I'm going to go back to, I, I think that this is a, a bit of a wives tale. I don't think this is actually a true story, but I think it does a great job of illustrating the point. You know, I read one time this anecdote where when the U.S. was trying in the, in the space race to get to the moon and President Kennedy sort of showed up at the facility 
where the engineers and you know folks from NASA were, were trying to sort of figure all this out. And he entered the building and he saw a gentleman who appeared to be a custodian. It was, you know, mopping the floor or something. And President Kennedy went over to him and said, you know, hi, I'm I'm John Kennedy. I'm the president. What do you do here? And the gentleman said, I'm helping us put a man on the moon. And I think that that kind of illustrates the power of when you have an organization or a group of people that are really aligned around what their purpose is, that the power of everybody pulling in in the same direction is something that really can propel projects, companies, relationships, really anything where there's, you know, lots of people involved. And so I think really understanding not only what your purpose is and what drives you and what makes you tick, but how that actually can be aligned in a way to sort of be a contributor and to help others, whether that's your spouse or your children or your business or a partner of some sort. I think figuring out how those things align and where the connective tissue is, is really kind of the key. Right. So actually, you now are in a leadership role in global philanthropy at Hasbro, which is a big corporation. What are the challenges of advocating for nonprofit activities or for philanthropy activities within the context of a big corporation? And how does one go about solving them? Yeah, great question. I think the key point I'd like to tackle here or get across is early before I started Rockstars, I I did a lot of thinking and I I was listening to an actual radio station at the time as I'm going back, you know, about 25 years now. And I learned about this concept of doing well by doing good. And I think that that's a powerful lesson that I've carried forward that is very applicable in the corporate world is I think there used to be a dividing line between philanthropic activities and in corporate America was seen as, you know, okay, we've made all this money. We're going to throw a little bit, a few crumbs over here, or we're going to help out this cause. But I think now there's really a lot of learning and data and science, frankly, around the concept that operating with purpose can really be a competitive advantage for businesses. And so I think a lot of them have come to embrace that. And I think if you can do a great job of knowing your customers and, you know, with the idea of a a company, there's obviously external customers that you're selling things to, but there's also internal customers in the form of your employees and other key stakeholders. And I think when you really understand what those people want and what motivates them and what makes them tick, you can make intelligent business decisions and formulate strategic programming and concepts that are very much in alignment with the greater goals of the business. So I think it's really important to be able to connect those dots for senior leaders and in convincing them you know, where to place investments and what things are are important is I think you need to paint that full picture of why it's important to the company, how does it connect with our customers, and how does it actually strategically help us fulfill our stated mission. So I think that you really need to approach it through that lens of holistic view. Yeah, so basically showing the value that you're creating for the whole enterprise or everybody that's involved. I want to close 
our professional section of this conversation with a question. And it's a question that is inspired by a comment that one of my guests made a few episodes ago. It was Dory Clark. Uh, she's an author and a great leadership coach. And she said, in today's world, people are told from the beginning, find your purpose and find it right now and then follow it. But, you know, finding your purpose immediately is actually a pretty tall order. And so you find your purpose and you actually are fully embracing your purpose in your work, but it took you about a 30-year journey. What would you say to somebody right now who is starting their career journey and maybe they're a little stressed because they haven't found their purpose yet? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the advice I would give people is to relax. I think you need to relax into it a little bit. As you mentioned, my own journey was you know several decades in the making. And I wasn't consciously thinking about a lot of these topics for, you know, at least the first half of, of that journey. But I think relaxing into it. And the other thing I would also say is to pay attention to your body and listen to your body. And I mean that sort of not so much in an existential sort of way. But I've another thing I've learned over the years is that your mind is a machine of just generating ideas or thoughts or falsehoods and, and trickery, whereas your body is really a sort of guiding star and a source of truth. And if, you know, there's the old adage of like, trust your gut and go with your instincts, I, I think that that's really grounded in science in a lot of ways. And I think we're starting to uncover that there are activities happening within you that sort of are key indicators of if you're going to the right place and, and how do you feel. I think uh, there's a great author that I love called Ryan Holiday, who's gained a lot of popularity in, in the last couple of years. And he wrote a great book called The Obstacle is the Way. And it's a far-reaching book. It has a lot of stuff in it. But I think one of the key things that it tries to communicate is that if something is scary or nagging at you, or in some ways sort of making you feel anxious, that that actually can be a compass drawing you towards that thing for a real reason. And, you know, the reason might be for you to be able to get comfortable with that thing, or to get over something, or to be able to release some angst that's kind of inside you. And I'm a firm believer in that concept that I think if you can pay attention to how you feel about things, and if you can make yourself open and vulnerable to the idea of getting comfortable with being uncomfortable, that that really is a measuring stick that can kind of lead you down the path to eventually finding comfort in anything. Well, that's a great answer and also an excellent point to finish our professional conversation and move on to the personal questions. The first one is, what is a passion outside of work that you have and how has that impacted your professional life? I talked about travel a little bit early on, so I, I would definitely say that travel is something that I have a lot of passion for. You know, I think it's really important for people to sort of get outside of the area where they were born or where they grew up, because I think you need to experience and see yourself in the rest of the world. Another big passion of mine, obviously music is, is a sort of easy one, but I'm going to go in a third direction and say coffee. Is, is a big passion of mine. I drink coffee a lot. I like it really strong. I like it black and I like a lot of it. 
I recently, I'm a little bit of a blogger and I keep a, a gratitude journal, which I write in every single day. And I recently wrote a post just talking about coffee as a subject, but it really was a, a writing on gratitude. And I think you can see in the idea of making coffee every morning, sitting in my living room with my wife, drinking coffee in silence, thinking about where the beans came from, you know, Guatemala, Sumatra, Ethiopia, they shipped, they're vacuum sealed, they come right to my house. And I have this great coffee maker, I smell the beans. And so, you know, it's all about this experience of, of drinking coffee, but really more around all the things that you can be grateful for in just something so small and trivial as a cup of coffee. That is great. I'm a big fan of coffee myself. And when we're done with the episode, I will give you the name of my favorite coffee roaster. It's a small mom and daughter shop down in the New York area. All right. We're at my favorite question of the show. Every era is business expressions and jargon that drives you crazy. So what is the business expression that drives you crazy? <laughs> yeah, this, this one's awesome. A lot of ways to go with this one. You know, one thing that's been kind of gnawing at me a little bit, and it's kind of timely due to COVID, is this idea of the new normal. You know, you hear that all over television or podcasts or books, whatever your, your media medium is. You know, and it kind of makes me chuckle because change is really the nature of all things. The universe is in constant motion. Literally every cell in your body is changing on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. So change really is the basis of all things. And it's kind of one of the great juxtapositions of life in that people are fearful and anxious and afraid of change a lot, even though it literally is the nature of themselves and all we do. So this idea that we're in a new normal or that what we're, we're feeling now is either new or normal I find that to be a little bit irksome because uh, there really is no new and there really is no normal. So I, I don't know if that's the kind of answer you're looking for, but that's one that hits me. Yeah, that's a great answer. And you're not the first one to bring it up. Uh, Rishat Tabakawala in the fourth episode of the podcast brought up the expression, the new normal, and said that we should call it the new strange. But his stake was different on it than yours, which is fantastic because it means that there are many angles and many reasons why we should hate the expression, the new normal. All right. So we're now at the final question of the podcast. And the final question, I call it food for the body or food for the soul. So you can choose, you can go food for the body can be a drink or a food, a recipe. You know, you mentioned coffee earlier. Or food for the soul can be a book, a piece of art, a um, song, a piece of music, a movie, something that nourishes your soul. So whatever it is, food for the body or food for the soul, something that inspires you. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's a tough one. Well, I already kind of mentioned uh, Ryan Holiday as an author that I really like. I'm going to lean in a little bit and I'm going to give the answer of a couple folks. I'm going to mention Seth Godin. He's uh, somebody who's probably fairly well known to yourself and, and the listeners of this podcast, but I think he's a superstar and, you know, not only the way that he approaches and thinks about the world, but his writings and his generous nature of sharing those ideas. Another person I'm also going to mention that I've been reading a lot lately 
is a woman named Tara Brock, who's kind of a, um, I don't know, spiritual teacher. And, you know, she's got a great way with words and tells a lot of great stories. And I always admire people that are adept at storytelling, because I think that's kind of the oldest and most effective method of transmitting ideas between people. So those are the two I'm going to point to at the moment that are really resonating with me. That's great. Jonathan, thank you so much. This was a really rich conversation. There's lots to learn, lots to think about. Thank you really for sharing your insights with our listeners. Yeah, I appreciate the time, Dino. I really do. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please tell a friend who may enjoy it that they should listen to it. And if you really like the show, tell your friends and post about it on social media. Every little bit of help counts. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode. And if you listen on a platform that allows reviews like Apple Podcasts or Good Pods, please leave us a good rating or a review. As usual, stick around because at the end of the credits, I'm going to share a song by one of Boston's best Americana singer-songwriters, Susan Cattaneo. To find more about Rockstars, go to rockstars.org, spelled R-A-W-K-S-T-A-R-S.org. And you can find Jonathan on LinkedIn at linkedin.com backslash in backslash JJ LinkedIn. You can find me online at al4ep.com with the number four. And you can also email me at dino at al4ep.com. On Twitter and Instagram, look for at al4edp. And you can also find the show on Facebook. Just look for Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums, with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. As promised, here is a song by Susan Cattaneo. It's from the album The Hammer and the Heart, and it is an epic ode to the wonderful world of vinyl records that we all grew up on. It also features the fantastic Telecaster playing of Bill Kirchen and Duke Levine. It's called In the Grooves. You drop the needle on a 45 Watch as the whole world came alive Bugs. Rush it home, slip it out of its sleep.